Welcome to Cat Talk Radio with your host, Molly DeVos. Molly is a cat expert and certified feline training and behavior specialist. With her expertise and her guests, you'll learn how to interpret and control behavior issues with your cat, how to entertain and converse with them, and keep up on the latest feline news around the world. Now, here is Molly DeVos. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Cat Talk Radio. I'm your host, Molly DeVos, and today we have a very special guest. We want to welcome to the show Dr. Brian Hurley. Dr. Hurley is a vet, and he's going to be coming on to Cat Talk Radio monthly to talk about all kinds of cat medical issues and things like that. So welcome to the show, Dr. Brian. Thank you for having me, Molly. Yeah, we're excited. I'm I'm super excited that you've agreed to come on monthly so that we can talk about cat issues. I mean, obviously, you know, listeners, he he's not going to be able to, you know, evaluate what's going on with your cat medically in a podcast, right? <laughs> but but do send your questions in cuz I've I've stockpiled a bunch of your questions about medical issues with cats and we'll be talking about those going forward, but Today, I kind of just wanted to spend a few minutes with letting everybody get to know you and see your face and and uh, know a little bit about you. So tell us about um, Dr. Hurley is the National Medical Director for AmeriVet Veterinary Partners. Now, tell us about AmeriVet and, and what they do. Okay, so uh, AmeriVet uh, Veterinary Partners is one of the consolidators in the uh, realm of purchasing veterinary practices across the U.S. Um, what makes AmeriVet a little unique, uh, when we entered the uh, consolidation game, was they offered a partnership model. So I was introduced to them back in uh, June of 2017. Well, actually, February of 2017. We closed in June of 2017. My business partner and I uh he was looking for his exit strategy. He's 10 years older than I am. And we looked at Amerivet. And what really intrigued us with the Amerivet model is they allow us to keep a percentage of our practice, which then keeps us vested in, in the practice, allows us to continue the legacy while um, they're taking away a lot of the back office processes in the practice. So we could focus on being veterinarians while we're in the practice versus always having to deal with all the HR issues and the financial issues and all those things. And, and so that's really what attracted us. And we also wanted to make sure that we found that consolidator that really is interested in helping us protect the legacy. You know, obviously I retired from clinical practice um, at Gardner back in August of 2020 and the practice is doing well without me there. So I feel like, you know, Gardner's going to be around long after I'm gone. And yeah. That's really what we hope for. And did they replace you? Is that how that works? They had to hire new vets when your partner I, retired and you went into this position? So my business partner still works there. He will be retiring at the end of this year. You know, really, the so instead of saying they replaced me, um, Part of what I knew in order for me to retire, I knew I had to uh, find my replacement. Yeah. So really the onus 
was on me with their help. I mean, obviously the recruiting team uh, helped us find the DVM that replaced me. So that was just part of it because obviously if I walk away completely, then that puts them under pressure because now they've lost appointments. And so it just kind of worked out that once we were able to find my replacement, I was able to um, step away from the practice itself so I could focus full-time with the Maribet. That's great. And and what do you do as a national medical director? Um, always an interesting question because I've been here since the start. Uh, I was uh, brought on pretty quickly first as a consultant and then as the national medical director that I, my role is support of the Ameribet um, departments. So I can work with finance, payroll, HR, recruiting, um, operations is where I do the majority of my um, support, uh, business development. So I can talk to potential partners uh, for business development. So like this weekend, we're going, we're hosting a, a fishing trip and bringing potential partners on. So I'll be attending that because I can talk from both sides, right? I can talk from being a partner uh, at Gardner Animal Care Center to also understanding the corporate side of things. Um, but so that's the corporate side. And from a practice point of view, the other nice thing that we like, you know, that we liked about Ameribet was we get medical autonomy. They're not here to tell us how we're going to practice medicine, what our standard operating procedures are. That's left to what we do. You know, they bought us because they felt that, you know, we were a good practice and we had solid medical, you know, medicine for all our doctors. So I really kind of support the doctors in what they need. A lot of it's business, you know, kind of talking about P&Ls and, and helping them understand what impacts their business. But I also can help with flow through the hospital, how to utilize technicians, you know, those type of things that, you know, as veterinarians, we're not really trained to run a business and focus on from the time the client parks in the parking lot to the time they get back to their car, what that travel through a hospital looks like. So I spend a lot of time doing that as well. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true with all entrepreneurs. You know, we we do what our passion is and we, we don't necessarily know how to run a business. Right? So right. it's and great I, to have someone like that as a partner that that takes that on. Right. And it's nice, too, because I can go into a practice. I remember visiting one of our practices and I literally had one foot in the door and they had a, a difficult surgery on the table and they're like, can you come help? And so that day, that was the start of my day. You know, um, I was there for something completely different. And, you know, it's nice to be able to kind of pivot and, you know, really kind of address the needs of each individual hospital because they're each unique. And that's, yeah, yeah that's another thing that we like is Gardner Animal Care Center is still Gardner Animal Care Center. Um, unless we share with you that, you know, that we partnered with Ameribat, there's not anything in the practice that's going to let you know that we're, part of a, a greater entity. That's awesome. And how many, do, how many clinics do they have now? We're up to 187. Wow. And the, the, the goal is by the end of this year, we should be 
between 200 and 210 practices. Wow. That's pretty aggressive uh, <laughs> M&A there. <laughs> yes, we have a very strong team as far as that goes. <laughs> wow. And we have a strong operations team too, which is just as important. You know, while we're a consolidator, you know, there's that part of the business. It's equally as important that we have a strong operations team that can go in and help run these practices after we close. And, you know, and, and we pride ourselves on the strength of our operations team. Um, we have an incredible uh, COO and Chris Flowers that just does an amazing job with his team. So we're very fortunate there too. That's great. But now, and you still are licensed to practice veterinary care though, correct? Yes. I, you know, I still have my license in not only Massachusetts, but I have 50 licenses. I have, I'm licensed in every state uh, in the U.S., except Hawaii, but that one's coming in 2023. So uh, <laughs> I'll be, that's my little claim to fame is having 51 licenses in the U.S. <laughs> and no listeners, that does not mean he'll come make a house call. <laughs> exactly. But right. it does make it nice because I have the ability when I visit practices, because I'm licensed, I can be a little more involved if I need to be. Yeah. And know that I'm doing it on the up and up because I'm licensed in that state to practice medicine. Yeah. So. That's good. That has to be particularly handy. Now, when you were practicing, what would you say is the strangest species you ever worked on? So in practice, I saw dogs and cats. That's really, you know, probably when I first started at Garden Animal Care Center, I saw the occasional ferret. Um, I was very fortunate, though, in veterinary school, uh, you know, at the University of Florida. I had a mentor that treated everything. So I would help her treat um, uh, armadillos to, we did, to zebras. I mean, I got to work on giraffes. I got to work on alligators. I got to work on uh, tigers, uh, all these different, you know, emus and ostriches and all these exotic animals that uh, I knew I wasn't ever going to work on, but I got a lot of exposure <laughs> and got to see her, you know, do a lot of things um, on the exotic side. She saw pets at SeaWorld, she saw pets at Silver Springs. And so I got to go for a ride and got exposed to a lot of different things. That's fun. Now, I don't, yeah. I'm not sure everybody understands, but to become a veterinarian, you actually have to go to school longer than a human medical doctor because you have to learn so many species. Isn't that correct? Well, from the point of school, we both do four years initially medical school and veterinary school. So that's our base learning. I think what really separates us is, yes, we have to learn during that process, not only dogs and cats, but, you know, back when I went through school, we had to learn equally large animals, had to be mm -hmm. exposed to exotics. Schools track a little more now. So, you know, if you go in a small animal, you can heavily concentrate on small animal, though you still need to pick up a a rotation here and there. Once we graduate, get our DBM and pass the boards, uh, we can go right into practice. 
where human physicians are required to go through the residencies and I see get a little more advanced afterwards in working on animals. Now that does not mean we have internships that you can go to after school. You can participate in the residence residency to become board certified and name a discipline, surgery, dermatology, oncology, uh, everything the human side has, veterinary medicine has now too. Hmm. Interesting. Now I've, I've noticed is, is, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it certainly seems with, with all the vets that I interact with in shelters and private practice, it does seem to be a female dominated industry. Is that, is that correct? It definitely is now. I mean, we, when I went through school, we were just starting this and I, and I was in vet school from 1990 to 1994. Um, we were seeing the transition of it kind of being more female dominated. My daughter, who's in her third year of veterinary school at the University of Florida now, her class is primarily female. Um, so we have seen that transition. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. I mean, personally, I, I don't know. I think back when I, you know, when I was becoming a veterinarian, it was a lot of long hours and, you know, the pay was really low uh, considering, I mean, my first job paid me $32,000 after four years of school and being a doctor, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I had, I had friends getting their engineering degree, making over six figures out of school after four years, you know? And so I think there was, you know, kind of that frustration and the financial aspect of it may play a role in, in, you know, particularly when you want to have a family and, you know, and, and it, you're, you're constantly working and, and not making a lot. I think we've seen a transition now where, Veterinarians are making, you know, decent money right out of school. It finally has caught up a little bit. Um, but I also think that today veterinary medicine is about achieving work-life integration. And as, as, a, as a result, people want more flexibility in their schedules. They want to be able to, you know, be parents and be there for their kids and be able to go to the events because they're not going to dedicate, you know, 80 hours a week to the profession. And I think veterinary medicine is accommodating that way. And so I think that's why we see a lot of uh, females entering into the realm over, you know, over males. Yeah. Makes no sense to me, but. You know, and I always wondered, I, I, back when I was single, I had a, a, a lady, an elderly lady in the church that was really excited to introduce me to her son, who was a vet. And she knew I was, you know, all about cats. So she said, I want you to meet my son. And she, so she had me over to her house with lunch with her son. And, uh, and I really thought we were going to have a, you know, an animal welfare connection. And he flipped, told me, he said, I didn't go into veterinary medicine because I loved animals animals or, you know, and animal welfare. He said, I did it, you know, because, because it was a great career and it was going to be good income. And that needless to say, I never saw him again, but because right. there really wasn't that connection and there wasn't much else there too. But, but I wondered if, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it's stereotypical to think that, you know, women, there are more women involved in animal welfare. And, and if that's driving someone to that as a career, that, that might be why, I don't know. Well, and 
you know, I think they're more, you know, I think they have the long history of, you know, the, the empathy and the compassion. And, and I think, the, and in veterinary medicine today, I, it, you know, I go to talk at a lot of schools. And one of the first questions I always ask is, how many of you were told not to become a veterinarian? And overwhelmingly, greater than 50% have been told that along their journey huh. to vet school. And I think part of it is skewed because the industry was that long hours, you know, the, the older veterinarians don't, you know, you don't make a ton of money for the amount of hours that you spend. It's a thankless job and so on and so forth. The beauty now is that veterinary medicine and the and the role of the, the pet, both dog and cat in the family, has really transitioned from the farm to the backyard, into the house, now into the bed, that and owners now, because the families aren't as big as they used to be, and some, you know, you know, some you have the husband and wife working long hours and, and children aren't in the mix right now. So they get their pets and they're willing to spend money on their pets to do the advanced diagnostics and, yeah. you know, go to specialists, which is amazing. Cause that's why I went to school. I didn't go to school to get vaccines. I went cause I wanted to save pets. I wanted to keep them alive as long as, you know, I could. And I think now owners are allowing us to do that. And so I, you know, I think we may see a, a transition where we might get that 50, 50 mix at one point, because as my daughter saw, she, you know, she saw how well this industry has treated me. And, you know, I paid my dues early, uh, became a partner in a practice and have done incredibly well for myself, for my family, my wife worked and, um, I mean, it's an amazing industry and, and you're right. We go into it for, I went into it for love of animals. And when I was a five years old, when our, uh, when one of our dogs got hit by a car and, and the vet, veterinarian couldn't save it, I turned to my parents and said, I am going to be a veterinarian and I'm never going to let another pet die. <laughs> I've learned, you know, five. And now I know that that's unrealistic. Right. But that's what drove me. It was like, I want to save these pets. I mean, they mean the world. And I was crushed. And I think, you know, I think that still holds true. And I, I wish, I wish students didn't hear the negative side of veterinary medicine because I just don't, I don't buy it. I truly think it's a, an amazing profession and I would scream from the rooftops via that. Yeah. I didn't, and why do you think there is such a vet shortage right now? What's going on with that? Well, A, I think there's more pets than ever in the families, right? And so, and there's only so many hours in a day for uh, veterinarians mm -hmm. to see these, these pets. And as we see that, particularly after COVID, that tremendous spike in the number of, of pets, you know, there used to only be 20, it was like 28 veterinary schools in the U.S., and the class size was 60. So when we say veterinary medicine is competitive, part of it was there was just so few seats in each class. Mm -hmm. And veterinarians, I mean, they'll, they'll practice until their 70s. You know, I've seen veterinarians practicing at 80. And so 
we were able to keep up with demand. Now what we're seeing is we can't keep up with the demand of the pads. And now the schools are, you know, my at University of Florida and most veterinary schools, they've gone from 60 to 120 students. Mm-hmm. And there's just over 30. I think there's 33 veterinary schools in the U.S. now. And only 120 seats per school. So you're still not producing enough veterinarians to care for the number of pads. And now the schools are starting to go push it to 150. Um, so there's a couple of schools. I think the incoming class will be 150. So we're trying to address it. You know, and that's not even taking into account, you know, going down to Ross University or some of the other foreign schools. Like my daughter got into Glasgow and Scotland. So she mm-hmm. you know, that was a place that she may have ended up if she didn't get into a U.S. school. But, uh, you know, and so we have the replacements coming, but we also have people exiting. And so we're at that crossroads. I think the studies say that if we don't get more veterinarians, um, by the year 3030, like 75 million pets aren't going to be able to be seen because we just don't have. Mm. Yeah, I had heard that it was about estimated to be about a 10 years before the shortage kept caught up. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. that's what I'm hearing, too. So, wow. I mean, it's sad, but um, we're pretty resilient. And, you know, I think the veterinarian is really important in the practice. Uh, I think that as veterinarians, we can do a better job utilizing our technicians uh, because mm-hmm. really a veterinarian, what, what separates us from anybody else in the practice is there's three things that we can do. We can prescribe, we can diagnose, and we can do surgery. We're the only ones that can do that in the practice. Outside that, I don't have to be the one drawing blood. I don't have to be the one taking the x-rays. I don't have to be the one communicating what you know, feline leukemia is to the the feline patient or FIV to the feline patient. Um, I don't even necessarily have to be the one teaching the diabetic feline's owner how to administer uh, the insulin. If I provide that information and train my staff, they can take that off my plate so that I can see more people. So I think not only do we need more vets, but I think we can elevate the role of the technician to help us be able to see more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always wanted to be a vet too, as a, as a kid, that was I can remember my first, I think it must've been fourth grade, you know, where they start talking about careers and what do you want to be? I was torn between a fashion designer or a vet, which I'm kind of surprised I haven't come out with a line of cat clothing, (laughs) but but I don't really endorse people dressing their cats up. It's probably why I haven't done that, but I always wanted to be a vet, but I wasn't one to, to be able to hang in through the school part of it. I, you know, I, I had to work and, um, and I didn't really have that, that I didn't have parents to help me, you know, send me through with the cost of school and that kind of thing. So, so I didn't, but, you know, four years isn't sounding like that long. Cause you know, it, at my age, four years goes by pretty fast. <laughs> so it's, it's never too late, right. For somebody to, to go be a vet if they want to. We have, I, I just learned this a couple of weeks ago, but we have a, a, a practice where the veterinarian joining just graduated and he graduated at 55. Mm-hmm. So older than I, a year older than I am. And he is just starting his career as a veterinarian. And when I went through vet school, my lab partner, 
he was 44 when he started veterinary school. So, hey, it, it isn't too late. You know, the cost of veterinary school has risen, though, quite a bit, too. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, I, you know, went through the halls in, in the 90s. Um, you know, they're coming out with, you know, not only the under, undergrad debt that they may have to incur, but veterinary school adds quite a bit, too, which is also why we see that increase in, in salaries, because you can't, you know, you can't come out of school with $300,000 in debt and only make $30,000. That's yeah. just not sustainable. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I'm very happy to see, I just, I, this industry tickles. I, I just, I, I could not be part of a better industry. It, I've gotten to see a lot of changes in my time. And I look forward to, you know, watching the changes my daughter goes through and these young veterinarians, because they're going to do amazing things. That's what I always tell them. And, and obviously vet tech school is a lot easier and, and more accessible for people to get into. Right. So that that's something that anybody could do there. Yeah. The, there are a fair share of tech schools. Um, you know, it, in order to sit for the exam, it's a two year program. So that's always another way to get into, you know, the, the field. And I think that, you know, the more our, our technicians are becoming certified and some, you know, a lot of states, if they don't have licensure are looking for licensure, which then, you know, makes that even more of a career path, you know, for our technicians. Um, and with licensure comes more responsibility too. You know, so um, it definitely is another career opportunity within the the industry uh, if you don't want to go, you know, the doctor route. Yeah. And and then there are vet assistants. Is that also, uh, uh, you know, they have, you have to go to school to be a vet assistant or is that something you can learn on the job? So in our industry, there are certification programs for vet assistants. So there are vet assistants and and a lot of those are trained in-house. Um, there are in-house trained technicians. So they function in the role of a technician, but haven't gone, you know, the, the route of school. Uh, or they're out of school. And then you have your certified veterinary technicians, which now are trained to a different level uh, and can take on more responsibility. So when you look at a, the Veterinary Practice Act, uh, it defines what a vet technician can do in a practice and what a vet assistant can do in the practice. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes with certified veterinary technicians, an in-house brain technician technically would fall under that vet assistant because they don't have the schooling and have passed the veterinary technician national exam that they have to pass in order to get that uh, CBT or LBT status. Yeah. Now the, I want to touch on the, the dark side of the industry a bit. Um, a lot like, a lot like dentists, um, there's an extremely high suicide rate among veterinarians. What, why is that? You know, veterinary medicine has always been a very emotion-driven uh, industry. You know, we go in for our love of pets. We go in because we want, you know, we want to be the voice for the the pets that can't speak for themselves and to help owners understand what's going on with their pets. With that, we're allowed to do euthanasias. 
Um, you know, so we can put pets to sleep. And I think that takes a toll on any human that, you know, that it has that ability to help pets in their suffering, but it's still something that that's tough for us because as doctors, we want to, you know, to save them. Yeah. And then we also, particularly in the last few years and with COVID, you know, we work on our pets, but we're also working with the pet owners. Mm-hmm. And that creates a challenge sometimes too, because we take a lot of sometimes the bad side of those communications. You know, it's great when everything goes well, but we take the brunt. And as veterinarians, and a lot of us are introverts, we take all that in. And I think it's just when you're doing that day in and day out and you know, you have those days where, you know, you say goodbye to six, seven pets, you know, and then you're dealing with, you know, with staff that's not happy or clients that aren't happy, that that emotional toll has elevated us to that level of, unfortunately, leading in suicide, which is unfortunate. And I think I think part of it too is that we're not really good at asking for help. Mm-hmm. So even when I go into the schools, you know, I tell students, I'm like, here's my email address. Here's my phone number. And the one thing you can never say is that you don't have somebody to turn to because I will take your call day or night and help you with whatever it is you need help. And don't ever feel like you're alone in this process. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I'm going to solve their problem, but if they, you know, if they're getting to that point, I'd rather them reach out to me so I can direct them to the appropriate place before it's too late. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I just think that's the nature of the veterinarian. We, we just keep everything internal and want everybody to think we're doing great. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I deal with mostly shelter vets on a day-to-day basis and you talk about a hard job <laughs> and, and thankless and, uh, you know, at, at least there's not always the, um, of course, there's the human element with with other rest of the shelter staff, but there's not that client, that that pet owner element. But there's an awful lot of euthanasia, and uh, and the vet doesn't have to do all of it. You know, there there are uh, you know staff that that takes care of a, a lot of that, but uh, but wow, it's like I always say, it must be like we're working in the mash unit, you know, because of the extremely high volume and. And right. limited resources you have in a shelter setting. And, it, you know, some of it, I always say veterinarians are our own worst enemy, right? So think back in the day of, you know, James Harriet taking um, care of pets for food, you know, to then when I first started with the low salaries, it, it, it you know, it was just you just did the job. You just got the job done. And as time has gone on, you know, things have improved dramatically and vets were always run blood work, call VexA with results, do this, get the mm-hmm. results immediately. It was always, we, we could almost get diagnosis and treatment started at one appointment. And now because medicine's gotten better, we've gone the same wait times as human labs, you know, and we need to process and we need to think 
And sometimes it's tough because we've always been get results right away where we know on the human side, you walk into the ER, it's a four, six hour wait. Well, now that's on the veterinary side too. But when it happens on the veterinary side, we get a lot of slack. You know, owners yeah. are like, no, no, no. I need my pet needs to be seen now. And we're like, but CR, we have a lot of, you know, so it's some of it. I think we created, we set expectations and we need to reset new expectations that, you know, we're practicing really high quality medicine to see the average life expectancy of pets. When I graduated be six to eight years of age because they were outside to now living 13, 15, 16 even some 20 years old, that's because of the medicine. Yeah. So and you're able to do so much more. And and speaking of that, so, you know, they say like maybe 50% of people take their cats to the vet. Mm-hmm. And that's not many. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I'm i pretty sure I know why that is. <laughs> maybe you probably know. Um, <laughs> it's really because, you know, to, 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 the owner has a lot of anxiety because they have to take, you know, take the cat, put the cat in a carrier, which then the cat freaks out or they have issues getting the, you know, cat into the carrier. They get scratched or they get bit. It's just such a high anxiety thing. They just don't want to go. And then when they get to the veterinarian, you know, if the cat is growling and hissing and screaming, again, it just sets a another level of of a bad experience to them, an anxi- another level of anxiety, and they just want to avoid that. You know, yeah. They, the, the, their, their cat is, um, you know, hurting in going to the vet, and the best way to do it is just to avoid it unless you absolutely have to go to the vet. The problem with that is those, the annual exams, the twice a year exams are so important because it, you know, as you know, cats are. I always, I always used to tell my clients in practice, you know, they lived out in the wild. It is survival of fittest out in the wild. So I think innately they have learned to not show the symptoms as fast. I say dogs are they break a nail and they're crying. Right. <laughs> oh 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 oh. Cats <laughs> don't want anybody to know they're hurting until until they just can't hide it anymore. And sometimes at that point, you know, it's too far along for us to make a long term difference. And so, and I think that's where now like the fear freeze coming in and and people are really starting to try to pay attention to how do we make the visits more accommodating and peaceful for our cat owners. Yeah. So more willing to come in. And I think, yeah. we'll get, you know, and, and I always tell people too to to look for mobile vets in their community. Yeah. Does has Amerivet um, brought any of those into the fold? Have they looked uh, at a mobile? We so we kind of have a little of everything, and yes, we did just bring in our first um, at home only. I mean, all they do is travel to homes, um, you know, in the Boston area and uh, do veterinary care in the owner's home. So we were excited to bring them on because again, it's just another unique thing with Amerivet is where we have large animal practices. We have mixed animal practices. We have small animal, we have emergency. And now we've added at home. 
Yeah, that's great. And uh, yeah, I always tell people do that because that's the best thing for the cat. I mean, obviously, especially at end of life, but even, you know, any routine exams and vaccinations and things like that you need to do at at home. And there's even some that are that'll have dental units in their in their little mobile coaches and x-ray units in there so they can they can do a a lot. And dental is probably one of the most important to get cats into a vet for, I think. And we'll talk a lot about that. I want to dedicate a, a whole episode absolutely. <laughs> to cat dental because that's that's super important. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I look forward to that discussion. Absolutely. Now, do you have a cat? Tell everybody about your cat. Are you a cat guy or a dog guy? <laughs> I love them all. Honestly, you know, I always tell the story. My wife is going to kill me for this, but she just didn't grow up around pets. And so when I proposed, she's like, well, you do know that I have never had pets and I'm not sure I want to have pets. And I said, that's okay. I said, I'm going to get my fill every single day. I'll get kittens, I'll get seniors, and I I will be smothered in licks and kisses and all that during the day that when I come home, I'll be fine. Uh, then we had our daughter and our daughter convinced her to get our first cat. Um, <laughs> he he uh, was with us, thankfully, for 16 years before you know he succumbed to uh, lymphoma. Uh, about midway through his life, we added our chocolate lab and my wife loved AJ, our cat, misses him and still talks to him to this day. Uh, still has his ashes where he can be seen because <laughs> she never wants to forget him with his low paw print. Um, you know, and now Rocky is getting ready to turn 11 in February and she could not imagine her life without him either. And so we, we changed her. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> That's good. Well, I look forward to talking to you more as the months go by and um, and having everybody, um, of course, get to know you better, even better as the months go by. And we're going to talk about all kinds of things. We'll we'll talk about, you know, of course, um, uh, dental. We'll talk about stomatitis. I want to talk about lots of urinary stuff since that's a, a a key issue with cats. Pain management you know, behavior medication. We've got a long list of stuff to talk about in the future. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad you um, asked me to join the show and I'll do my best to provide as much information as I can for you. Well, we're excited to have you and uh, and thank you. We'll see you again soon. And, and thank you everybody for tuning in to Cat Talk Radio today. And until next time, keep calm and purr on. You can be a cat lifesaver by helping to keep us on the air. In the U.S., about 10 cats per hour are euthanized in shelters due to behavior issues. Through this educational radio show, behavior consultations, seminars, and articles, Cat Behavior Solutions intercepts cat behavior problems in the home, reducing the number of cats who are surrendered to shelters. Make a donation at catbehaviorsolutions.com. That's catbehaviorsolutions.com. Looking for products that address specific cat behavior issues? On our website, cattalkradio.com, you'll find things that will create enrichment in the environment for your cat. 
toys that will reduce boredom, the world's best and safest nail clippers, and much more. All proceeds support our mission, reducing the number of cats surrendered to shelters. Stop by the site and pick up a few tips and tidbits for your cat today. Visit cattalkradio.com and look for The Behavior Shop. for tuning in to Cat Talk Radio. Please join your host, Molly DeVos, for another episode of the program on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, go make a connection with your feline friend.